You're going to have to get closer to your microphone, as always. So scary. <laughs> I noticed when Rob and I were recording, it was really bad. Yeah. What do you think it is, Ginger, that makes it hard for you to get close to the microphone? Is it is it intimidating as a, you know, like the closer you are, so the more exposed you are? Or Maybe. Is it, okay. Interesting. Okay. Did Lindsay, did you notice that with Lindsay? Didn't you have to have her move a little closer? Yeah, I, I did. I, I kept having to sort of pull her in That's and then so she kept interesting. laughing. Hmm. I think, so I've got obviously tons and tons of experience working with microphones. Um, so it may be just like, I know that if I am too far away from the microphone, the microphone will not be able to hear me. <laughs> Um, right. It's, I think it's a vulnerability thing or, uh, I don't know. I also just move a lot when I'm talking. Sure, sure. So I think that I change body positions and I don't want to think about staying in one place. Like fair that enough. takes my mental capacity away from yeah. my brilliant ideas. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. I use my hands a lot when I'm talking. Mm -hmm. Yesterday I was recording, um, an interview with a pastor for a sermon series that he's doing. And, um, in our first take, like immediately I hit the microphone with my hands because oh, yes. I was talking with my hands. Mm -hmm. And then like it took us like four or five subsequent takes for us to like every time there was something else that got us off on the wrong foot. Yes. The previous three interviews we did in one take, no yeah, big deal at all. But then this one, because I hit the, I just I got us off on a weird foot. Well, everybody, welcome to Super Together. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm James Cochran. And I'm Ginger Rothis. And today we're talking about rejection. And that is literally as much preparation as Ginger and I have done yes. for this episode. I've done some thinking about yes. it, but, um, Me too. you know, so I'm curious, Ginger, if you've got a story of rejection that is sort of that, that comes to the top of your heart as you think about the issue. Well, the reason I thought this might be good to talk about is because I'm noticing it a lot with clients and mm. different levels of rejection. So rejection from like job loss. I got fired from sure, my job. Sure romantic rejection I, mean, mm. I feel like um dating right now is so hard and so there's some relationships ending of with people i know um i've noticed some intimacy rejection lately in some of my clients um that both men and women have wanted to be more in intimate with their spouse and mm -hmm. felt rejected um and then this you know affairs and the the idea of i didn't mm. get i'm not the chosen one yeah. you know um and so I just have noticed that theme a lot. And I thought, my gosh, this is, it, rejection is something we live in fear of, and then it devastates us when it happens. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought you and I could kind of break that down a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I think of rejection, obviously there are the, um, there's a relational dynamic to it, but so much of our experience of rejection sort of occurs at the individual level of like, behaviors that occur in the other person that often don't right for the other person mean rejection are experienced by us as rejection exactly. um you know and i and i think that both of those perspectives are fair but it, it is one of the more fundamental kind of relational misunderstandings where um a you know i think the thing that i see most often with couples has to do with sexual intimacy where one partner says um, you know, I want to, Hey, can we have sex? And the other partner says no. And that is seen as my partner's not attracted to me. My partner doesn't want to be intimate with me. My partner is, you know, interested in somebody else like that spiral can, can get right. out of control pretty quickly. Um, but I see that so often. And when I actually sit down and process it with both parties present, you know, the partner that said, Hey, I'm not that interested in sex right now. 
it has so little to do with the other person, Mm -hmm. but we experience it so personally. So it is, I think that it is interesting for that reason. Um, But I, and I'm wondering how much that is like, if we were to define it, does it feel like that is consistently true where it's just, there's always at least some level of, um, you know, we experience ourselves as being cast aside, cast out, um, deemed as less valuable, but the person who is, engaging with us doesn't experience it in that same way usually yeah what you just made me think of was kind of that primal um desire we have for connection Mm -hmm. and and back to that evolutionary brain of ours that said if i get kicked out of the tribe i can't Mm -hmm. survive out there on my own um and so maybe that's what comes up and that's why we filter it through every you know all of our partners decisions through a filter of they are rejecting me is because that's one of our deepest um you know, survival yeah. instincts and that, that deep need to feel connected to somebody. Right. So it's almost like it's, it's easy to interpret behaviors through the lens of rejection mm-hmm. because our brain is very primed to be insecure about rejection. Exactly. It's, we better make sure that we're not kicked out of the tribe. So if anything even remotely smells like that, that we're being kicked out of the tribe, mm-hmm. we need to respond to it as, as though it is that dire, as yes. though the stakes are that high. Yes. Um, but I think that the experience of rejection is certainly one that is, um, I think so much of it results in like a, a self-worth kinds mm-hmm. of um, internal narratives where we just say, well, okay, if this person has rejected me based on my assessment, here are all the things that I think are, are true about my value. Obviously, when it's the sexual intimacy discussion, it has to do with, you know, am I attractive? Does my partner find me desirable? And all those types of things. But um, you mentioned job loss. You know, when I was early out of grad school, um, I was working for a nonprofit. And I remember, like, me and my entire department got fired. And I had never been fired before. Um, I had never had the experience of an employer saying, um, we don't want you to work for us anymore. And that's one of those things where, like, I mean, if you're laid off, if you're furloughed, you know, if you're, you know, downsized in some way, it's easier to get to a mental space of, okay, I wasn't actually rejected here. Broader decisions were made that I was sort of caught in the crosshairs of. Um, but in, but in certain cases it just feels like, no, like there's no other way to spin it. They decided that I wasn't good enough for, you know, their place of employment. Um, how do you see that affecting the folks that you're working with? Yeah, I think it's that you just named it. I'm not good enough to be chosen, to be kept. Mm. Um, and I think that's, the same sentiment that comes up when we're in um, either romantic or marriage rejection kind of categories too of um, I'm not good enough and I really do think it the the roots of that are in self-worth and Mm. if we have put our worth on being chosen by somebody else um, being employed by somebody else uh, all those criteria then that's fragile if because it's out of our control, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're putting our worth on something that we have no control over. It's another person's decision. Um, and so I do think we have to work each of us as individuals on our inherent sense of worth sure. so that if I'm an employee, that's icing on the cake. If I'm chosen, it's icing. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's bonus. But I'm good if I'm not. I'm yeah. solid if I'm not. Um, yeah, I think we just we become fragile when we have put um, so much validation on being chosen. Yeah. And it's going back to the, you know, evolutionary tribal nature of it. Like I think a lot of 
I, I use an evolutionary viewpoint to help people get to a place where they can understand why their brain reacts and responds in the way that it reacts and responds. But then the, the bottom line of that story is usually like, that's not the context we occupy anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you might, your brain might be hypersensitive to threats in the environment because that was helpful in avoiding bears, mm -hmm. you know, a hundred thousand years ago, a million years ago. Um, but you don't have to worry about bears anymore. We live in a context that's relatively bear free. Um, I haven't ever seen a bear outside of a zoo with my own eyes. Um, I have not either. And um, so challenging that sort of becomes the work of, you know, anxiety management, for example. But I think that the same thing applies to um, really the, any question of rejection and belonging and saying what capacity do I have to survive outside of my tribe? Mm -hmm. um, or really, not, it's, it's more like to survive outside of this particular relationship. Mm -hmm. um, now, in a married relationship, I think what's most challenging is that um, it, it feels like we're attached to this person, and mm -hmm. so feeling rejected by them in, in any way be, makes it really hard to relate to them safely. Um, so, but as you said, if we can begin by saying, okay, I asked my partner if they wanted to have sex and my partner said, I'm not really feeling it. And I experienced that as my partner rejecting me. Um, now m when, when I feel rejected, the wheels start spinning in my head of, you know, do I have a safe place to belong? Is there a, you know, um, a, a context in which I can feel sort of the mutual protection of the tribe? Um, now, if we can stop that spinning by challenging the, is this context really that same context? Do I really have to fear that based on my partner saying, I'm not really feeling it right now, uh, that I don't belong or I don't, you know, have a space within the tribe. So if we can say, okay, the stakes are not that high, like that's not really probably what's happening here. Um, now we're in a much safer space to engage the question of, um, you know, where do I derive my worth from? Um, and, and I think in the context of relationship, it opens up far more interesting questions about like, let me explore with my partner, you know, where they're at, what, what they're feeling, because rejection, I think closes us off to connection when we experience that that's what's happened. You know, I almost think about rejection as being something so final. Like if you apply to a college and you know, we get rejected, like that's different than being waitlisted. It's different than being accepted. It mm -hmm. just feels like, yeah, no, you do not belong mm -hmm. in this community. Mm -hmm. um, and so when, when it stops being rejection, then we can explore the question of like, you know, okay, so what's, what's going on with my partner that might have informed their decision not to be intimate with me mm -hmm. in this moment? Mm -hmm. um, how can I have a conversation with them that gives me more insight into kind of what informed that experience? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> You look like you okay. have another thought. I don't. Okay. I don't. I um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, um, I think that's right. And and you know we talk a lot on this podcast about personal responsibility and kind of some introspection and some looking at um, ourselves. And I think in rejection, uh, that's all that can almost be taken too far, right? Mm -hmm. We but maybe this is a time to to say, I always like your question, what's it like to be you, um, mm. you know, of putting ourselves in the other person's shoes of what might they be dealing with yeah. and why might they have a headache or be tired or just not up for this um, and, and depersonalize it as much as we can in, mm -hmm. in that aspect. But then I also think um, 
you know, and marriage, I think, is different than dating sometimes mm-hmm. in this rejection thing. You kind of have this contract with one another in marriage um, mm-hmm. that you know it's, it's you know, it's it may be a bad night or a yeah. bad week, but we're in it for the long yeah. run. It, it can endure kind of yes. those short-term bumps exactly. maybe a little more readily than a dating relationship. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I remember, I, I looked this up because I texted it to a client, but it was Rutgers University did a uh, study and they were looking at the neurochemicals in the brain that are released in when you're in a rejection mindset. And it was the same as addiction withdrawal from mm. opioids, I think they were looking at. But it was, it was that idea of, you know, like a chemical mm. rejection, a chemical addiction withdrawal too. And so that, but that was more in dating relationships than in marriages, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. And that kind of, I have, I have, some people I know that are dealing with rejection as they're becoming more clingy, trying to hang mm. on for desperation. And then I have other people that are saying, I'm done, I'm out, right? You reject me, I'm, I'm yeah. done. Yeah. And so they're shutting it down. And it's interesting because I was looking for things to kind of send them to um, think about it a little bit more. And in that Rutgers study, there's this element of, um, in a teenage brain, rejection is so devastating mm-hmm. because there's no frame of reference that I'll ever be okay again. Right, right. And and that's where I went to. Okay, maybe there is some neurochemistry going on as well. Of this, this is hopeless. This is yeah. done. And I think that's what's different in dating than in marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The stakes I think do feel higher when it's it's more a matter of like. Is this behavior, is this reaction to some bid for attention, some right. opportunity to connect, is this indicative of something more final? Is this yeah. is this, this person saying, um, you know, they don't want to be with me? You know, mm-hmm. I've had clients say, like, in especially early on in a dating relationship where um, if the norms that are established maybe in the first month or two of a relationship, um, maybe they're, you know, texting at least once a day where there's kind of a back and forth thing. And then a couple of days go by with unresponded text messages. Um, they're, they're all of a sudden awash in that rejection mentality. And, and their brain goes to places that say, well, you know, this person's just like everybody else. This person doesn't care about me. This person isn't interested. Now, it turns out it's like, oh, like, you know, I, I dropped my phone down a manhole, you know, or person mm-hmm. hole. Have right. we changed the names for those? Oh, I, I don't know, know. but Good maybe point. we want to. Um, I dropped my phone into a sewer, maybe we'll say, um, and it took me a minute to get everything kind of back up to speed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that, um, that difficulty I think is, is far more, um, what's the word I want to use more acute, yeah. um, in those dating relationships because the, you know, if, if at some point the relationship is going to end, it's going to look like that. Yeah. You know, whereas in a marriage, like you might go through a period where it's like, yeah, we're disconnected. And the per- broader perspective of our relationship is that we overcome that disconnection mm-hmm. in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you've established this norm that says like, yeah, we're, we're engaged like this, then a disruption of that norm w- without any other context can feel like, oh, like this is the end of the relationship. This person has made a judgment that they don't want to be with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does, it feels more final. I mm-hmm. think it feels more acute. Um, there's something yeah. interesting in the sewer metaphor because I'm also thinking when we drop our phone in a sewer, 
we have to pretty much accept it's gone forever. Mm. And even if I get it back, it's probably ruined and done. Mm-hmm. And yet, I don't want my phone back. I don't if want I it back. It yeah. <laughs> exactly. So there's some level of finality there. Mm-hmm. And I think when we are um, dating or broken up with, let's take that. Like, okay, somebody broke up with me and, and they are done, but I am not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the idea of, I'm going to look them up on social media. I'm going to see what's happening to them. That's kind of like calling the sewer maintenance people and mm-hmm. saying please try to get it out of there yeah. i want it so badly i don't care yeah. what it looks like yeah. just give me is my it phone possible back. to recover it yeah right, is right. it possible to recover it and so if it's all we can see it with our cell phone that that's almost torturous right mm-hmm. to hope you're gonna get it back and then do you really want it back yeah. you know and so um but i think that that obsessive kind of addictive nature in our brains may come out after we are after we are rejected and broken up with in that we keep looking for a thread of hope and that's torturous to us and i think so much of it is going back to that idea of where do we derive our self-worth yeah because if we can achieve some sense of um well i'm still valuable even if this rejection is sustained or even, you know, if this person comes back to me, then I haven't been rejected. Or, um, here's one that I hear a lot of, like, if this person's life is falling apart, um, then that proves that like they were better off with me. Therefore this rejection isn't something that's ultimately bad for me. Like I'm not, um, like my value isn't, um, impugned, you know, in that way. Um, you know, and so I think that that's a, it, it all, I think circles back to this question of, what does it mean for me if I have been rejected? Because I think that really we're, we're engaging in, in these two questions of often we are, we experience rejection even if we're not rejected. And then if we are in fact rejected, if there is some, you know, like objective way to say like this person decided they did not want me in a relationship with them, whether that was an employer, whether that was a lover, whether that was a, you know, a friend, um, or, you know, any of those kinds of contexts, this person decided that they didn't want me to be a part of that anymore. Um, how do we process that rejection? Um, and again, I think usually we process through the lens of, am I in fact less worthy? Am I in fact less valuable? Um, you know, I, you and I have had discussions um, offline a lot about um, the way that people um, have been hurt by faith communities. Um, and what they experience as rejection from their faith communities and sort of how how deeply traumatizing that is to them, especially because of the ways that we have expectations of our faith community that, oh, these are the people that are supposed to love me unconditionally. These are the people that are supposed to um, always be accepting me. Like rejection's not even an option for them. Um, and then to feel as though those faith communities turn their back on you gets to a place where you sort of lose some of that capacity for you know, how do I restore my self-worth in there? Um, you know, very few of us like would wish on our former faith communities that they just like crumble to the ground. And that's evidence of like, oh, we're, you know, we're, we're valuable because they, they couldn't survive without me. Um, but I do think that that is, you know, part of the sort of internal narrative that we, we ultimately have to challenge and to say, um, I have worth apart from where this community um where this community assesses my value. And I think that comes from, developing that sense of self-worth comes from kind of asking ourselves the question, who am I and what's true Mm. for me and what do I value and what do I need and want? Um, And, you know, and maybe rejection 
as painful as it is, is also an opportunity to reconnect for your, with yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I know in the um, research on self-compassion, you know, the distinction is made between self-pity and self-compassion. Mm. And self-pity isolates us with, I'm, why is this happening to me? Why don't they want me? Um, mm. I'm the only one, you know, that's devastated. They're happy and moving yeah. on. And those are all phrases of self-pity, which makes us feel more alone. And phrases of self-compassion are things like, what do I need mm. to feel better here? What, um, you know, one of the statements that's really powerful and that I train in self-compassion is um, other people have experienced this too. Mm. Other people are currently feeling this way. And that is a um, connection into the shared human experience yeah. rather than I'm out here all on my own, which goes back to our tribal, um, maybe uh, primal kind of fear. And and so that connecting to I'm not the only one this has happened to is a really powerful sure. self-compassion practice. But yeah, I think that's where we build a sense of I'm going to be okay. That's even a practice. Put your hand on your chest and say, you're going to be okay. And the research shows saying your own name is, is mm. important. Like, you're going to be okay, Ginger. It feels like a compassionate coach or a mentor is saying that to you. To Your, your brain loves it no matter where it comes yeah, from. Yeah, I think that that is the ability to say, um, like, I'm going to be okay, and this is happening to other people, and um, really placing yourself like within a broader um, relational context of like, I'm not the only one having this experience, but also a temporal context of like, this isn't the sort of the ultimate assessment of my value um, that there, that I do deserve to belong. um, Even if this particular community um, has assessed my rejection. I think back to when I lost that job, my wife was out of town. She was, um, doing a um I think it was like a bachelorette weekend this was back when people still got together and did things um it was um her and my sister and like a a lot of my family system like went to like the lake um to sell it was my before my sister got married and uh at that time um I, so I was, I, I had gotten fired. I'd never been fired before. It, it felt like a, you know, a, a real like personal assessment on like, you know, who I was as a person and as a professional. And those of you who know me know that like my insecurity is all orbiting around my sense of competence, my, my sense of, um, do people experience me as intelligent and capable and a, a good worker and all these other types of things. So that was like a shot straight through the heart when I got fired. And who I called was my stepdad and my father-in-law. Um, one, because they were like the only two people that were in town. Um, but I was like, I think what I was doing at that time was saying, I I still want to feel like I belong somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, let's go out to dinner and you guys are going to pay mm-hmm. and you're going <laughs> to tell me that what I'm feeling is okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my father-in-law apparently had never been fired in all of his 60 some years. So he wasn't super helpful, uh, but my stepdad had. And so it was, it was, it was a conversation that I remember feeling like, like, okay, like these people still accept me even in the face of this. And so I think part of what, what, and there's some of us may have that internal reservoir of being able to say, um, my value is solid apart from the assessment of whoever I experienced this rejection from. Um, but if not, 
that's where we seek those relationships, those um, sort of sources that really can affirm us. Um, you're, you're so excited well, no, to say I something. I just wanted to go with that on if you, I, I had a client that I said, who are the people that love you? And let's, let's go spend mm-hmm. some time with them right now. And um, he couldn't come up with those people mm-hmm. like you did. And so that led to a discussion of then let's pay for them, right? Let's, mm. You've got me as a coach. Let's get a therapist. Let's sure. Because you need a team that is pouring into you and believing in you. So I would say to people that are feeling like, wow, I can't call my dad or my father-in-law and feel part of that tribe. Um, you know, it's okay. to. We joked about it, but it was okay to say you can pay for that. That's what mm. I'm here for, you know? And yeah. and so it it was hope of, oh yeah, these are resources are out there. Right. Um, and not to be in that despair that I don't belong anywhere. Sure. Um, and so I think anybody listening that's kind of feeling like, well, I am rejected by the entire world right now, um, you know, find a therapist or a coach or a pastor mm. or somebody to pour into you. Sure. And I tell my clients routinely, like, if you can't at any particular time find that reservoir in yourself to be able to say, I am good enough. I deserve to be happy. I, I have value even apart from this community that I've experienced rejection from. I would say, okay, well, well, James thinks I'm good enough. Mm-hmm. James thinks I'm valuable. Mm-hmm. And, and the reality is I, I do from like a values standpoint, like I yep. believe that, that exactly. human beings have value. They have a place to belong. They're, they're part of this species that we're all participating in. Um, and, and there are, you know, legions of people out there who believe similarly. Um, and I think that that, I think in this modern era, maybe also in the COVID era is something that I find especially difficult is getting people connected with communities that Mm -hmm. will allow them to feel that unconditional sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think it, it's, None of this is to say, like, you know, just go out and find your people. Right. Um, because it can be hard to go out and find your people. And, and there may be lots of people that have rejected you. Um, one of the things I was thinking about is we had this discussion when I was in graduate school um, in our, uh, what was it, counseling in a pluralistic society class. Um, I, my team was, basically every team identified like a marginalized group. And we said, how can we... Um, like let's let's help our classmates develop competencies around caring for this marginalized group, um, coming alongside, supporting, joining in solidarity, et cetera. Um, and so me and a handful of my other peers, we were focused on the LGBTQ community. Um, and as we um, did that, there's an activity that um, we found where you get these little paper cutouts. They look kind of like gingerbread men, gingerbread people. That's the second gendered um, <laughs> uh, thing that maybe is going We're away. We're getting better at A gingerbread person. Yes. Um, and um, everybody gets one. And the nature of the activity is um, you will say, okay, if you've got a green gingerbread person, um, like you would on the left arm for everybody, left arm, right, like a close family member, on the right arm, right, like your dream job, on the leg, right, your... Um, a hobby that you're really passionate about on the head, write the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like you write these things that are sort of important dimensions of your life. And then you would go around and say, okay, if you've got a green card, uh, or if you've got a green gingerbread person, um, tear off the leg. Um, and if you've got a blue one, tear off both arms. Um, and that those would, 
basically be indicative of the fact that for marginalized communities and the LGBTQ community in particular, um, coming out um, and saying to your tribe and to these different things that are important to you that you are um, you identify as queer can result in being cut off from these very important things for you. Mm. And one of the people in the room um, who was gay held up his card and he, his gingerbread person who was completely intact. He happened to get a color that didn't have anything torn off. Um, and he was saying like, he says, this reflects my life. Like I, I feel like I've, I've never lost anybody significant and um, that all the people, that's not to say that I haven't endured um, hatred and haven't endured all these types of things, but the things that matter most to me are things that I've been able to sort of keep intact. Um, and I, I, I walked away from that with this experience that says like we, you know, I mean, I, 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 it strikes me now that I would love to have engaged that in further conversation because he, he qualified it in saying mm -hmm. like, I've experienced mm -hmm. hatred and I've experienced these types of things. Um, but I like to think, and this is completely imaginary. This is me making a total guess about his experience. Um, but that there were things that he might have lost but that he found security in the things that ultimately stayed, the things that really did matter. The things that don't reject you, the, the communities, the people that don't reject you, like those are the ones who see through, you know, whatever skills you have, whatever job you have, how much money you make, you know, um, you know what you look like. Um, and they say, no, this person has value because of who they are. Um, and those are the relationships you want to cultivate anyway. Um, so in a way, this is saying like, if somebody rejects you, forget them. Like they're not somebody that ultimately, um, and this is, I think the people that will truly reject you. If somebody really does make an assessment and say, you're not good enough to be a part of whatever community that I'm representing or whatever relationship we might've had, um, then that's a person who hasn't found a way to engage your relationship with a sufficient amount of grace that will sort of allow you to overcome those kinds of barriers. Um, and instead do your best to lean into those relationships where that grace is present and you are able to, um, see like, yeah, like, like these, these people value me in my most authentic expression. Yeah. Um, so what do you got? Yeah. Well, I just looked up a, a text because I had texted it to somebody, but I wanted to remind myself what the statistics statistics were to end on a uh, note of hope here mm. um, I think this was in the Journal of Positive Psychology um, but it was the study that found 11 weeks after rejection is the at that point at the 11 week point 80% of the people reported that something extremely positive and better than what they lost came mm. into their life yeah so you know just if you're in the middle of this rejection, sure. hang on, because yeah. it can seem like you're always going to wonder, will I find it again? The right. job, the partner, right. the community. Um, and, you know, I thought that was an interesting, hopeful mark of mm -hmm. 11 weeks is a long time. But there I loved that 80 percent of the people reported something extremely positive and better than what they lost came into their lives. Yeah. And. You know, if you're part of the other 20% that it feels like it takes longer and it feels like right. there are um, other things that you have to, you know, find like that's where Ginger and I come in, that's right? right. Where, where you find um, that there, like I will make a, the promise and the commitment that there are people um, within, um, I, I, and now I'm thinking about people that live in like the middle of nowhere, but there are people that you can connect with 
who will offer you that unconditional acceptance and say, um, it doesn't matter if you've been rejected by other communities, mm -hmm. that they'll accept you for who mm -hmm. you are um, and really help you look for, cultivate um, the kinds of relationships that are going to be most restorative. Um, because I think that like, you know, my job, and I, I'm sure you experience yourself in the same way to a large degree, is, is, is to ultimately get to a place where like, I'm not in my clients' lives mm -hmm. anymore, where they've um, yes. sort of... Um, they graduate. Found, <laughs> right. They, they find this wellspring <laughs> yes. of inner strength that allows them to say, um, yeah, you know, like, um, there was a season where I needed the guidance, I needed the affirmation, I needed the support. Right. And now, like, I've been able to identify those things on my own That's right. um, in a way that is... Um, you know, allows me to live my best life and I don't have to pay for it. That's I don't have right. to, um, exactly. you know, um, to find that support in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so it's, that. it's available, um, as you say, and like, and for most folks, um, it's the tincture of time. It's, it's going to come, you know, in 11 weeks or so. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, and then if it's, if, if you're counting down the time and that 11 week marks hit, hit, hit or sometime before that, just say like, okay, um, I'm going to take the proactive step to connect with somebody that's going to offer me support in that way. So. Yeah. And I think you and I, you know, have unconditional support mm -hmm. of, of our clients and, and our friends and, and, and people we know we've, we've both struggled with it ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes us decent caregivers. Sure. Sufficient. Um, yes. Sufficient, yeah. Is that we know what it likes to hurt. It, mm. it feels like to hurt. Um, mm. And I like what you're saying about it. it's a very, you know, I think sometimes resistance comes up in seeing a therapist or a coach of a, that it's going to be a long-term commitment. It's going mm -hmm. to mean, and what I have really found in, in the years I've been in private practice is it's very um, seasonal, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's come for a you know a handful of times until you feel stronger. Take the tools you've learned mm -hmm. and find the ones that work best for you in in your life, and and then call me if it doesn't work anymore, mm -hmm. right? And then mm -hmm. we'll come back. But it's not this I have to commit for the rest of my life to this person, you know, in a therapeutic setting. Um, it really is short-term work can yeah. can yield long-term gains. Yeah. I The analogy that I use most often is that it's like, you know, base camp for mountain climbers. Yes. Um, it is you, you go to the base camp to get acclimated, to collect your tools, to learn how to use your tools. Um, but base camp isn't isn't the destination not where you're going to stay um, you you go and you hit the mountain and you um, and maybe the tools work for you and you never go back to base camp mm -hmm. but maybe it's like ah oh, well this tool broke or this tool didn't work for this particular obstacle or mm -hmm. I forgot how to use this tool because it's been so long since I've used it um, then you head back to base camp and you get re-equipped and then you head back out that's right um, but base camp's never the point um, that's kind of the graduation conversation that I yeah, have with exactly. clients whenever I, I love get it. to yep. I use a mountain um, analogy too yeah. um, <laughs> so rejection is a, a, I'll say that it's not as significant a part of our life as we imagine it to be. So challenge when you feel that you have been rejected, challenge and ask yourself whether that is, you know, your own insecurity of tribal exclusion, which is, is real, uh, mm -hmm. but that doesn't necessarily, but if you have the capacity to challenge that, then it opens the door to re-engage those relationships in meaningful ways. And if you do experience true, real rejection, you know, consider whether there 
those are relationships that ultimately would have been the most affirming of your most authentic self in the long run. Um, seek out those relationships that are, um, that are affirming, that do accept you unconditionally. Um, find professional help and support if it feels like you are just coming up empty. Um, but there's, there is a path forward from rejection. Um, I think you and I both believe that and that's part of why we do what we do, but any other yeah, parting thoughts as we close really, out? you know, from, from my standpoint is, is develop a compassionate coach within yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, hone that ability to say it's going to be okay. And, um, you know, get to know yourself better, reconnect with yourself so that you've got your own back when it feels alone in the world, you know, because I found that's where a lot of security and confidence and hope comes from is um, developing that inherent sense of self-worth that you are going to be okay. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that that will wrap us up for episode 30, whatever on rejection and um, if you think this podcast is dumb, I reject your criticism. <laughs> um, that's the best I could come up with. Um, I'm James, and you can find out more about my work at talkingwithjames.com. And I'm Ginger Rothis, and you can find me at compassionfix.com. Uh, we'll be back next Friday talking about whatever occurs to us on Wednesday <laughs> um, uh, prior to the episode release. But uh, we'll look forward to being with you at that time. Until then, be well.